We need a global policeman, and the United States is the only reliable and desirable candidate for that job. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong, and I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Donald Trump is a leader. He will reassert America's position as the nation with the best values to lead the world. When you have the nuclear codes at your fingertips, you can't have a thin skin or a tendency to lash out. You need to be steady and measured and well-informed. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. I have great faith in the American people. Look forward to working with whoever gets elected in November. Hello and welcome to The Global Election on Monocle 24. I'm Steve Bloomfield. We're going to start with a horrible cliche. I know, I'm sorry, but it sums up today's show pretty well. When America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. It's true. We saw it most recently in 2008, when America's subprime mortgage crisis led to the collapse of the housing bubble, which in turn led to the failure of some of the country's largest financial institutions and a full-scale global financial crisis. So political decisions made in America can lead to the Brit losing their job, the Swede losing their pension, the Australian losing their house. And in today's interdependent world, it goes even further. It can lead to the Chinese factory closing down, the Indian infrastructure project being put on hold. In short, what happens in America affects us all. Welcome to the global election. In a moment, I'll be joined by The Economist Linda Yu and by the economics journalist Martin Sambu. But first, Ken Rogoff is Professor of Public Policy and Professor of Economics at Harvard University. He's also been an economist at the IMF and served on the Board of Governors at the Federal Reserve. He normally tries not to talk politics, but he's made the sort of arguments in the past that would have mainstream Republicans nodding in agreement. This election, though, is a little different. When you look at the impact that the election of Donald Trump could have on the rest of the world, what are the potential economic impacts that you foresee? Well, the simple and obvious one, and it isn't even the worst, is he's very much in favor of protectionism. And I think that would be a huge step back for the world, for U.S. leadership. It might benefit a few pockets of his supporters, but I think it's a very dangerous trend. Maybe it'll happen under Secretary Clinton also. Well, I mean, let's not be mistaken here. Secretary Clinton has also said that she is against a number of free trade bills that one would have thought she might have been in favor of maybe a year or so ago. Yeah, but that's exactly right. I don't really know where her position is. She's been a centrist and she's been pulled to the left by the primary campaign. Trump's position is very clear. There's also immigration. You talk about building a wall and I'd say quite a bit of implicit racism behind it. Uh, It's not very attractive in an American president. But that's actually not what worries me the most about the economic effects of particularly a Trump victory, which is simply, I don't know what our economic policy is. I don't know what our foreign policy is going to be. He says he is going to make great deals, and I don't think that's a way to approach a world leadership position. I'm concerned about the seeming erratic nature of decision-making. I don't know who his advisors are. I hope for the best if he wins, of course. But I think the rest of the world is probably justifiably more nervous about that. And then what is the the economic knock-on effect for the rest of the world if you have 
a protectionist president who is also unpredictable? Well, I think it's the unpredictability that concerns me more. It could be that just narrowly in terms of U.S. economic growth, it is possible that the Trump in the short run would be better. I mean, uh, Clinton has a lot of uh, increases in tax policy, redistribution, which is all very healthy you know, for social welfare, but on the other hand, could well slow growth. There's been a big growth in regulation under President Obama, who I think has been a great president, by the way, but that's certainly a concern. So I'm not saying necessarily the American economy will do worse, but it'll become a more unpredictable partner in the world, I think, under a Trump presidency. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what's next. And it's a little bit scary to have the leader of the free world be someone who's so uh, unpredictable. I think for a long time, people said, well, he just talks that way. He's not really that way. It'll really be fine. But what's sort of disturbing is if you look at how things have the transition from the primaries to the general election, I think he would have had a lot more than a 35 percent chance if he'd just sort of gone down the middle of the road at this point, but he doesn't. And so that concerns me. I, I mean, again, I hope for the best. You hope for the best in people. Uh, you hope someone grows into the position. But I think the rest of the world has been very nervous. When I've been traveling, I think what everyone in the rest of the world said, well, Trump's not going to get to be the candidate. And then when he gets to be the candidate, they said, well, he's not going to win. And I don't know. I think it's still very much up in the air. Does the U.S. economy still have as major an impact on the world's economy as it always has? It's gotten smaller, and China's gotten more important. It's gotten smaller relative to the world. But it's still very important in financial markets. And right now, it's the economy of the advanced economy that's growing decently. The UK is doing okay also, I might add. But the Eurozone and Japan are really looking you know, pretty limp at the moment still. I, again, it could get better. So the US is important. China's gotten more important. And the Chinese economy is slowing down. That's, I think, quite worrisome. It's more the what is the world order? What's the trading system going to be? What's the future of environmental agreements and regulation? Where is conflagration going to break out? If there's a pandemic somewhere, will the U.S. handle it in a responsible way? So the U.S. plays a leadership role far greater than just its economic impact. And I think that's where the concern is for the rest of the world. Okay. Ken Rogoff, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Global Election here on Monocle 24 with me, Steve Bloomfield, and I'm joined now in studio by Linda Yu and Martin Sambu. Linda Yu is an economist, broadcaster and author. She's adjunct professor of economics at the London Business School. Martin Sambu is an economics writer at the FT and the author of Europe's Orphan, all about the woes of the Eurozone. Linda and Martin, thank you both for joining us today. Linda Yu, if I can begin with you, how important is the United States to the global economy? Very important. We hear a lot about the rise of China and emerging markets, but it's still the case that the U.S. economy is the largest single driver of the world economy. What happens in America affects the rest of the world. And most importantly, in many respects, in a world of very uncertain interest rates and markets, what the U.S. central bank does 
currencies around the world follow the dollar. It sets a kind of baseline for markets. So, in other words, everything about the U.S. ranging from financial markets to the real economy has a massive impact, and we should all follow what's happening there. I think pretty closely. And Martin, has that changed at all over the past ten years? Have there been, you know, as Linda says, yes, there's emerging markets, yes, there's China, but America is still dominant. Have there been any changes? Do you think? Well, in a sense, I think it's changed less than people maybe expected. If you remember, there was at one point this talk of decoupling that other parts of the world might actually be able to steam ahead, even if the U.S. was in recession and so on. That's turned out not to be the case. Linda is completely right about the importance, the kind of. Point of gravity that the U.S. economy is in the global economy. I would focus in particular on the financial markets because the U.S. is sort of a financial nerve center, I think, in the U.S. economy. And we saw how the global financial crisis happened. It happened first because of the meltdown of certain financial markets in the U.S. based on the、uh, the subprime mortgage、uh, derivatives. And Linda, how much is this down to politics? Can politicians do elections actually have much impact on the way the U.S. economy interacts with the rest of the world? I think it depends on who becomes president and who controls Congress. So, if you look at the big economic changes over the past few decades, you could arguably say that under Reagan, and under Clinton, and under Bush, there have been. Major changes, more so, for instance, than under Carter or under Bush one. <laughs>、um, you know, so I think it does depend. It also depends on who controls Congress, because America is a presidential system. So if you have both houses of Congress being controlled by the same party, you can end up with, for instance, we saw the government shutdown, a standoff between the executive branch, where the president obviously sits, and the legislative branch. So I think a lot. Of American economic policy does turn on who's in charge. Of course, there's a large swathe of policy run by the Federal Reserve, run by civil servants in the Treasury, run actually at a state level. That doesn't change a great deal. So the mechanism of government works. But if you want to talk about Big directions in terms of American policy. I do think the politicians elected to head these branches of government do matter, and also they get to appoint the Supreme Court justices. And these days, court rulings can have huge impact on business,、um, ranging from patents to tax cases. So I think American elections do matter. There's a fun statistic. If you look at the U.S. growth rate under different presidencies, it turns out that virtually every Democratic president has resided over a higher growth rate than virtually every Republican president. This is after the Second World War, which doesn't mean all that much. Partly because growth rates depend on a lot of things. Economies are cyclical. They might have been elected at lucky or unlucky times, and of course, policies. May affect short-term growth, but also very long-term growth. You know, think about Eisenhower starting the、uh, interstate highway system. That clearly shaped the U.S. economy to a huge degree. But policies matter not just, as Linda pointed out, in terms of what the policy is, but whether there is a policy at all. So one big problem for economies that we've seen not just in the U.S. but in in Europe and other places, if there's confusion, if there's a deadlock. If the political systems can't actually make any policy at all, that's when you really see economies stagnate, and conflict in U.S. politics is as high as we've seen it in a long time. That doesn't bode well, and、uh, well, one of the candidates has a detailed policy program, the other doesn't. We know which is which, but that, at least for now, creates huge uncertainty about what, if anything, would be U.S. policy just a few months from now. 
Let's talk then about those two candidates and their two different approaches to policy, shall we say. Linda, when we look at Donald Trump's economic policy, I mean, it's, as Martin suggests, it's actually quite hard to work out what the economic policy is because it's a series of statements and slogans and and wishes, isn't it? Yeah, oftentimes when Trump speaks, his remarks get clarified later, which I always find slightly worrying if you're looking at a president who set the uh, tone, anyways, of policy discussions and what have you. But I think from what we have seen from Trump over it's a very long election campaign <laughs> over the past year, I think there are a few things in terms of where he stands economically we should certainly watch for. One is, of course, his stance on trade. He is more protectionist probably than I would say lots. I can't think of a recent candidate who is that protectionist because he's standing as a candidate for the Republican Party, and they're actually the party of free traders. But he's raised a few issues there. And just very recently, he's also questioned the independence of the Federal Reserve. He's claimed that the chair, Janet Yellen, is politicized, that she does President Obama's bidding. So I think on those two fronts, those raise serious questions about a dramatic change in American policy. But yes, I think overall, it's very hard to know what his economic plans really are. He mentions, for instance, wanting to get rid of America's government debt. That, even if you were to win and win two terms, would require the American economy to grow at 10% or to cut federal spending by half. So that probably needs uh, some clarification if that's really where he's going. (laughs) Or uh, he, uh, yes, I think sometimes when he says, that's what I did as a businessman, I do hope he understands the difference between a business and running a country, which I suspect he does. But I suppose the overall position he's putting forward is really not detailed enough to have a detailed debate about, but it certainly sends signals that would worry people. But I should say, at least he didn't say for his economic policy, what he said about his foreign policy, which was to expect the unexpected. A lot of his business policy or economic policy is sort of an expression of this businessman bravado that that actually often works quite well in American politics, right? There is this sense among many American voters that we need a business person, a businessman usually, unfortunately, to fix the problems. There's this trust in the idea that the economy is a business, which is incorrect, but it's something that appeals to quite a lot of voters. And Trump has been playing this. You know, he has this book called The Art of the Deal. A lot of what he talks about is how he would be a good deal maker. He would strike better deals for America. Now, this isn't just about the economic policy proposals, but the economic diagnosis, because part of what he's saying is that we've had bad deals. You guys have had a raw deal. And that is actually true for a lot of Americans. Not a majority, but there is a large minority of Americans, and in particular the white working class, who haven't fared well over the last couple of decades. And some of that, not all of it, but some of that does have to do with trade. The... uh, manufacturing sector in the U.S. hasn't actually disappeared or gone off to Mexico or China. U.S. factories produce more than they ever have before, but with many fewer people. Some of this is technological change. Some of it is competition from China and other places. So this rhetoric about how you hardworking, white working class Americans were stuffed by bad trade deals has a lot of resonance. And you saw that on the left too, right, with Bernie Sanders. Linda, I just want to ask you about the the international perspective on Trump and his economic statements. When you're talking to people in in finance ministries or working in central banks, are they concerned by what they hear? 
my sense is they are concerned only because it's hard to know where he stands. And he is one of the two people who will become America's president in a few short months. And some of the sentiment that Martin just mentioned about admiring him as a businessman, I have actually heard that as well from business people in different parts of the world, where America may not be the most popular country, but they seem to think that having somebody who's not a politician and therefore like the America of old would be not an unwelcome change. So I think we would be overstating it if we said the rest of the world is full of trepidation. I think the same sentiments that Marta mentioned about the shrinking middle class, about the effects of globalization not being entirely shared, I think you find that in different parts of the world. And I think he taps into that strand of bringing something different and new to politics. I want to come on to that issue in, in a bit more detail in, in just a moment. But, but Martin, first of all, when you talk to people in Europe about the US election, do they have concerns about a President Trump and his economic policy? First of all, I think we're in a little bit in the same mode that we were in in the UK before the uh, referendum on the EU back in June, which is people can't really bring themselves to think that it would happen. And partly because of that, if Trump were elected, I think there would be an almighty market crash, much bigger than what we saw after the Brexit vote the day after, and he wouldn't recover. I think people are mostly concerned about, one, the lack of predictability, uh, that, yeah, there are some things that he says, and probably on trade, that's the one thing we can rely on. He'll be much tougher and much less uh, liberal on trade. The other thing is that he's not the type of candidate who will surround himself with experts and listen to them, whereas most other candidates, whatever they say in the campaign, they will tend to have an expert team around them and there's some, you have a sense of where they could possibly go. And I don't think we have that with Trump. So it's the uncertainty, really, that I think bothers everyone. Linda, you mentioned, of course, that Donald Trump is not as free trade as uh, Republican candidates normally are. But it's fair to say that Hillary Clinton hasn't been as pro-free trade as one would have expected, not just a Democrat, but a, a Clinton to be, given it was her husband who created NAFTA, who signed NAFTA. She has also tried to step away from many of these international trade deals. And we're now faced with a situation where both major candidates have spoken out against the idea of free trade, which was, th- this was supposed to be the idea of modern America. Yeah, and I suppose that reflects the change in popular opinion or sentiment on trade. I think free trade is something that lots of people are beginning to question, have questioned, actually for, I would say, over a decade. If you think about the protests at the IMF World Bank meeting in 1999, this actually goes back quite a long ways to the launch of the Doha round in 2001, which is meant to bring globalization's benefits to developing countries. It's been brewing for some time. So I think the Clinton shift is obviously dramatic. As you point out, her husband formed the biggest free trade area for the United States during his presidency. She was very active in his administration, as we know, heading healthcare and other things. So she was certainly part of that team. Well, she was so when she was Secretary of State under, under Obama, Obama, she was she was right. pushing uh, free trade agreements then too. And she supported TPP, the Trans-Pacific mm-hmm. Partnership, which is part of the Asia pivot of the Obama administration that created 
if pushed through, and that's a big if, <laughs> that would create one of the biggest free trade areas in the world, TTIP, America with Europe. But I think the fact that a lot of people in the median, especially middle-skilled occupations, have seen their wages depressed, I think there's a lot of sense that globalization hasn't brought benefits distributionally. And I think her change in stance probably reflects that. I suspect if she were elected, she would not be protectionist. But I think she would tap into the sense that even with countries around the world which are actively pursuing free trade agreements, it's not just TTIP and TPP. There's also RCEP. There's the AUC. There's a lot of acronyms. I'm so sorry about trade, but there's a lot of trade deals going on around the world. But even within these trade deals, there's a great deal more caution about how you bring benefits and a level playing field into um, the negotiations. So I think that's really where this stems from. But as a politician, she thinks she's going to win her votes. I would suspect for a lot of people, uh, the inconstancy of her position would not be appealing. I don't think she's shifted at all, actually. I think this is purely tactical. She faced a real challenge from Bernie Sanders well, in the so, primary. So she has shifted then, but she just doesn't well, mean it, it. Rhetorically, she's shifted. I don't think that her opinion has changed. And I think that if she is elected, she will find a way to try to keep, uh, in particular, the Trans-Pacific Partnership alive. Sorry, just on, is that a good thing? Well, what's interesting about it is that this is really the sort of trade deal that Democrats should like more than the classical trade deal, which is just about cutting tariffs. This is really a a deal about regulations and standards, how to govern trade. There are all kinds of things in there about environmental standards, labor standards, and so on. And, And of course, there are things where corporations maybe get advantages that the unions don't want them to have and so on. But in terms of how trade policy has changed, this is actually in the direction you would think certainly centrist Democrats would like. And she sees that. She understands what sort of deal this is. Secondly, because it's a deal about standards, it's actually one about who sets the rules for future trade relationships in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Is it going to be the US and its allies in Asia or is it going to be China? Because if the US leaves the table here, there'll be something else in the next 10 years, and it will be China that's setting the agenda. And Clinton understands that too. And finally, she is a politician who has a lot of domestic policies that are actually intended to deal with some of these fallouts of trade. So I think the way she thinks about policy and politics, she likes free trade. She's not a protectionist. And she thinks there are policies that can be had domestically to compensate for the negative consequences of trade. So all of that makes me think that the only thing that If she gets her way, she will actually keep these trade deals going. But we'll see. Linda Yu and Martin Sambu, thank you both very much indeed. Next time on The Global Election, we'll be talking about terrorism. And my guests will include Chris Phillips, the former head of the National Counter-Terrorism Security Office in the UK. Pretty much what ISIS are trying to achieve is to split the world down racial divides, and not only racial divides, but to religious divides. In particular, they would like to see the Christians uh, seen to pick them on the Muslims. And, of course, everything that he's doing and what he's saying feeds that narrative. And uh, if ISIS can allow the mainstream uh, Muslim to feel as though that there's a divide, then, of course, they've got more chance of getting more people coming over to their way of thinking. And, and everything that he said really is exactly the message that ISIS is trying to put out as well. 
Uh, and turning to Hillary Clinton, is it fair to say that she would take a have a similar position to Barack Obama, but perhaps you might describe it as marginally tougher? Yeah, tougher, a slightly tougher line. But I think that the key thing is that people know where she stands and she's got the experience that goes with it to follow through on that. So I think the world's kind of uh, really hoping that she gets in into power. The only people that I can see any benefit uh, to uh, Donald Trump getting in power is uh, ISIS and the terrorists because, as I said before, he is really trying to divide the country and um, and that really doesn't work. He, he sounds very much like the man in the pub that says uh, what he thinks, but uh, when you've got your finger on the trigger, that's uh, a, a dangerous position to be in. That's it for episode four of The Global Election. Episode five will be available next weekend. You can't vote for us, but you can rate us. If you like what you heard, why not give us a rating on iTunes? You can also find us on SoundCloud, monocle.com slash radio, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Global Election was produced by Bill Lutie and Rhys James. It was edited by Alex Funnell. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.